Hi there, and welcome to the Eat Your Greens podcast. I'm your host, Maya Lopin, and I'm here to deliver you your regular fix of greens through insightful interviews with experts and wonderful, passionate people in the field of environmental sustainability. Whether you are an expert yourself or just looking for some friendly background conversation while you go about your day, tune into these episodes to learn more about some current amazing people and initiatives tackling environmental issues. Who knows, maybe you'll hear something you like and be inspired to take on a project of your own. Welcome to Eat Your Greens, the first step towards making a difference. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Episode 7 of the Eat Your Greens podcast. I'm really honored to invite onto the show today Ted Howland, the Vice President Group Sustainability at Capital Land Investment. Ted has more than 20 years of experience in the field of sustainability. He achieved a Bachelor of Science and Master of Science in Civil and Environmental Engineering from Stanford University, and later worked in many roles as a water resources and project engineer. Previously, he was the Deputy Vice President of Sustainable Solutions at Mandai Park Development in Singapore, and is now the Vice President Group Sustainability at Capital Land. Ted has spoken publicly on numerous occasions, including at the recent Retrofitting the Built Environment Towards Net Zero Seminar, and I look forward to our conversation here today. Welcome, Ted. Great. Thank you, Maya. It's a pleasure to be here and a pleasure to um, spout out all sorts of what I hope are very interesting stories, because they're at least quite interesting interesting to me. <laughs> We're very excited to hear all those stories here. Um, so to start, let's explore your journey to your current role at Capital Land Investment. Um, why did you decide to pursue studies in civil engineering and how has this kind of created the path and led you to where you are now? All right, that is one heck of a, a convoluted story. I'll give you the short version, but I'm happy to elaborate on any particular part of it. So I've always had, I guess, what could be an engineering mindset. And I also grew up in a fairly small town, rural town in Northern California. Um, lots of mountains, lots of streams, lots of open space, not a lot of people. We grew up across the street from one of the major rivers, the uh, Sacramento River, downstream from one of the largest dams in the United States, the Shasta Dam. And if the sun hit just right when I was when we were driving um, to the city to the north, we could see one of the United States' worst Superfund sites. Um, so with those kind of influences, along with the natural fascination with engineering, um, it, exas- it uh, kind of pointed me towards uh, water and environmental engineering as well. For those that are curious, the Superfund site I'm referring to is the Iron Mountain Mine Complex, and it's a mountain. They dug it out over the last hundred years. It had about everything in it except for iron, and it also had something nasty called massive sulfide deposits. Mix it with rainwater and you get the lowest pH ever found on Earth, along with a unique ecosystem of really nasty bacteria. And the EPA's moderate level solution was to chop the top off the mountain and try to coat it in concrete. Hasn't worked so well so far. Um, so that explains a little bit of the engineering, mi- uh, engineering mindset. But as far as where I, how it got me to where I am now, well, also kind of a strange story. Growing up in a very rural town, I was very interested in actually joining the armed forces one day. But um, So I worked very, very hard to apply to all the military academies and got, got accepted to all the ones I applied to. And the others were knocking on the door saying, hey, why don't you apply to us as well? But when it was coming close to time to decide where to where else to apply for college, I suddenly lost my drive. It just kind of evaporated for the military institutions. And I decided it would be kind of, it would be really a jerk move, I guess, to take a slot if I wasn't 100% committed from somebody that might not have quite the paper qualifications, but have a lot more um, drive to do it. So I also applied to a number of other good, good civilian schools and decided to go to Stanford which is probably one of the two best decisions in my life. As uh, scooting forward a bit, I met a absolutely wonderful girl there who convinced me, who was a Singapore scholar, and convinced me Singapore would be an absolutely wonderful place to uh, for a young engineer to start his career. And that was longer ago than I really want to think, about 25 years <laughs> ago and we've been married for almost 20 years now, have three kids, and are firmly settled into Singapore. Amazing. Um, 
Oh, the number of weird coincidences that I've left out for the moment are truly amazing. Um, it boggles my mind every day. But I can go to some of those a bit later if we have time or uh, interest. Does that um, hit some of the questions you'd like? And would you like to move to the next question or dive further into that one? Uh, just to push it a little bit further. So you did, are you still engineering um, with Capital Land or has your role changed a little bit? Oh, yes, no, maybe, depends on the day. Uh, my official role in Capital Land, and even in uh, Mandai before that, was um, in, this, in uh, group sustainability or the equivalent of group sustainability. However, since I am still a registered professional engineer in the United States and Massachusetts, I still like taking things apart and digging into things. So I still do a fair amount a surprising amount of engineering-related tasks. So my particular team within Capital Land, we call ourselves Environmental Management and Innovation. We made up the title, and we're very proud of it. And the three of us are the en- are most of the engineers within group sustainability. So when it comes to a new technology to evaluate, whether it's going to actually be practical or whether it's a pipe dream, we get called in. Where it comes to our Capital Land Sustainability X Challenge, which uh, Jocelyn and uh, Lynn on our stakeholder team are also involved in driving, uh, we handle the actual where the rubber meets the road, getting the pilots implemented, getting them assessed, and drilling the... Um, innovators on how you actually bloody do a pilot because some of them are very well organized a pleasure to work with others are very marketing focused and will love to try to put out all this very bombastic wonderful um next greatest thing since sliced bread material and really struggle when you say exactly how are you going to prove it exactly what are you going to measure exactly what methods are you going to be using they kind of look like you hit them between the eyes with a hammer. And then you have to take them through the basics of how to set up a pilot and how to be able to prove the prove your claims at the end of the day. So still do a fair amount of engineering. And engineers are also absolutely deeply in love with Excel, so we do a lot of things in Excel. <laughs> when it comes to uh, heavy number crunching, yeah, I can't quite say we get stuck with it because we kind of dive into it, but uh, we get tasked with it. Yeah, that's a good uh, that's a good uh, way to say it. Okay, interesting. And so you mentioned like bringing them through how to actually analyze um, sustainability and the the pilot. So, what are some of the the ways that you do that? How can you actually quantify sustainability or like um, the yeah. Ah, okay. There's a number, there's a couple different ways to answer that question. So I'll try to hit most of them. So for, for the, for our pilots, usually the innovators will be, will have already come up and said, Hey, we will be able to save you water, um, between X percent and Y percent, or we'll be able to save energy, or with our, um, window adhesion system, we'll be able to reduce the amount of energy you need to spend to keep the place cool in the summer, warm in the winter. Uh, because we have assets all over the world. So some are, we have pilots in the United States, China, Thailand, Singapore, uh, and India, to name the five, yes. Um, and the where the rubber meets the road for this is where we say, okay, exactly what are you proving? Because some, let's say for one of the indoor air quality uh, pilots we were looking at, they said, we can reduce viruses and bacteria. Okay, great. How? How are you proving it? How are you measuring it? Um, oh, we can. Uh, everybody will be happier in the in the building. They'll be healthier. How? How will you measure it? Are you going to analyze MCs? Are you going to analyze sick days? What is the measurement? And after raking them over the coals for a while, they basically admitted that they would be measuring it based on. Um, virus suitability, virus survivability suitability, a formula they'd come up with, and it was linked to temperature and relative humidity. So we established what instrumentation they were going to be using, how it was going to be recorded, how often the data would be extracted, who would extract the data, and then how the analysis would be done. Because one of the key things, the way that we pilot things, and again, this is part of the engineering bench showing, is at the end of the day, we won't, don't want any arguments. Either the pilot has uh, met its goals or it hasn't. We don't want people arguing over goalposts having moved, um, success factors changing, 
either to either to make the pilot unsuccessful or to make it successful because we're very conscientious so we don't want to have our program appear like it's just a PR exercise uh, because it is not we're actually trying to find new technology so we go through in detail a with a document that we've developed called a pilot protocol on how the whole pilot is going to be laid out down to down to the level of if it catches fire at two in the morning what happens or if it breaks at two in the morning what happens does it have no impact and can we deal with it the next uh, morning, the next week? Um, does somebody need to go over there, flip a switch? Does one of the, somebody, one of the innovators need to race down there and race straight into the building? And if so, who are they? What are, what is their um, IC number? Um, how to, uh, and what's their contact so they can be pre-cleared with security. So the security just opens the door for them as they race through to get it. So that's at the um, micro level, I would say, or at the, at the pilot level. At a higher level, one of the things that we do is we do look at our um, assets and improvements to the assets through a lens we call the return on sustainability. Because quite a lot of people will take a very old mindset of sustainability costs us money. It costs money. It's a drain. And yes, it does cost money. However, these people very often very conveniently forget about the other side of the equation, which is the benefits. In addition to actually living on a habitable planet, you can actually lower your energy bill, lower your water bill, uh, improve the health and happiness of your employees, depending on the, depending on the technology we're talking about. So what we will make them do is to assess the return on sustainability, which is a metric that's a work in progress. It's in development, um, and it, which considers these benefits as well as the costs. And that's one of the ways that we remind folks and engage with folks that sustainability is good to do, not just from a, we've only got the one planet so far, um, and it'll survive, but we might not lens to the, yes, it can be actually attractive for your short-term bottom line. Guys, take a look at this. Does that address your question? Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, so you've actually noticed that it's important to kind of define sustainability within organizations and to set real targets and measurables so that it's like there's no argument that's that can be had. Um, and as you mentioned as well, that's really interesting is the cost benefit analysis and creating that buy-in. Um, and have you, like as an advocate for sustainability in uh, large organizations, how do you kind of pitch that or, or create that buy-in to balance um, growth and sustainability of the company? Do you find that companies are generally uh, willing to engage with sustainability, particularly when you introduce the benefit side, or is it kind of still a growing uh, interest? Ah, another really good question. And um, it's, a, again, going to be a multifaceted, a multifaceted answer, so it might ramble around a little bit. So I apologize for that. But as it partially it depends a bit, on the, a bit on the industry or on the project. So for Capital Land, we're a real estate investment manager. So our investors, the people that give us money to make money, they are increasingly um, focused on sustainability issues. They want to be uh, assured that they are investing in organizations with uh, compatible values who will, who will be doing their part for sustainability, who won't be dragging their feet, who know what they're doing when it comes to sustainability because they have made a number of uh, sustainability commitments publicly and they want to make sure that they don't get um, associated with greenwashing or tripped up or tied to a company that is not doing its part. So there is a, some pre there's pressure from investors to do good on sustainability. There is, of course, one of the things I absolutely love about Capital Land is there's a lot of pressure internally from senior management to do good on sustainability. And it's not just because, oh, it makes us more attractive to the investors, but there is a real drive to push sustainability and, innov and innovation. Um, our management is quite happy to be at the forefront and to provide money for the to be at the forefront. And those are two very important things when it comes to the internal engagements. Because it's one thing to go to a project or an asset or a team and say, hey, I have a great idea that will um, do something good for sustainability targets. But I don't have any money, so I need you to um, provide the money and the manpower, and then this will all work out really well, yes? 
not a very powerful pitch. Um, and that's one of the issues we that I know uh, folks at some other companies have. For Capital Land, in addition to the Capital Land Sustainability X Challenge, where we're looking for st- worldwide for startups, we have our own Capital Land Innovation Fund as well. So if one of the, our business units or one of our staff says, hey, I have this problem, um, I, know, I know this technology, I know this vendor can help solve the problem and improve the company, but I don't have any money to try it. Um, hey, can I get some money and try it? If it is a good case, then the answer is yes, and they can try it. And that's one of the very, I think, unique and positive and very one of the unique things about Capital Land and one of the very positive things as well. We're, we've allocated uh, 50 million Singapore dollars for that particular program. Um, now, as far as engaging in sustain, engaging, that is... That is an interest. That is an interesting one as well, because in some some teams or some roles, you'll find people that are very enthusiastic and they're a pleasure to work with, and things will move smoothly. In others, you'll find people that are more recalcitrant, either because of past experience, like even and even myself. There's certain technologies if you approached me with, I would be, I would say, thank you, but absolutely no, thank you. Now please leave before I throw you out the window. Um, <laughs> Oh, 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 some are just painful. Um, so there's some people who have, who've have bad past experience with certain technologies and sometimes they've allowed that to color all of their view of new technology. Um, or others just like, I like doing it the way I'm doing it because it's easy. I like following the minimum standards because it's easy. I like following the minimum standards because I can't get in trouble because those are standards and those are minimums and that's what's been bit, people have been doing for the last 50 or 60 years. So I don't have to think outside the box. I don't have to think flexibly. I don't have to do anything other than copy and paste, which my boss has been doing for the last 10 years, which his boss has been doing for the last 10 years. Da, 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 da. None of that applies to capital land, by the way, that's other things. Um, so there is very much a need to break that mindset. Sometimes you can do it with the simple fact of I've got funding. Let me do this. No problem. Other times it's a matter of engaging the particular team to convince them that while they may have had bad experiences in the past or they may be taking the safe road for the, there's a good reason to do it differently this time and they'll get and they'll get the support and they'll get the any additional help they need to do it and other times you need to inspire the uh, senior management because their direct attention can also uh move through sticking points and obstacles. I hope that addresses your question. I know it's a little vague on some parts of it. Yeah. Um, to push that a little bit further, and this is kind of a more complex question, do you think there is a role um, for governments or policy to play in in regulating sustainability and pushing for businesses to achieve like a certain level of sustainability or management? Or do you think it's something that should be like self-regulated? Oh, let's see. Especially with my faith in human nature, I think there's a critical role for governments. Um, so, for example, Singapore has been pushing the uh, on the aspiration side, the Singapore Green Plan. On the stick side, um, the codes of practice and also uh, Green Mark. So every number, every period of time, they will increase the requirements of their Green Mark certification and. It's very attractive to have Greenmark certification. By continually improving and making it more stringent, it drives the industry to do better and better, to reduce footprints more and more. And I think what the governments can do is they can basically provide a floor, as in, like, guys, here's the minimum standards. You must do this or get out. Um, Then with private sector, what they can do is they can take it beyond that because a lot of companies, they like to be the first. They like to have the um, unique selling points, bragging rights. So if the government can provide the minimums, then a bit of healthy competition among the private sector can provide the maximums or the true showcases. But if there's no push for the government from the government, then it becomes, I'd say, more difficult overall because you don't have that floor. So you can have actors that truly don't care, that just want the absolute lowest cost, um, 
kind of spoiling or distorting the market and making it more difficult for players that actually care about sustainability to do anything. Because instead of being compared against the government minimums, their um, incremental costs are being compared against the do, do absolutely nothing and don't care. And that gets more difficult. Right. Okay. Thank you for sharing um, that view. So now going back to your work as an engineer um, in the earlier part of your career, you've worked um, with the California Department of Water Resources, the California Regional Water Quality Control Board, uh, SEMCORP Utilities, and EarthTech. Could you share with us some of the projects that you've worked on in these positions? Um, is there any project that was particularly memorable, uh, maybe due to its impact or the learning experience um, that you gained from it? Uh, short answer, yes. Uh, longer answer, no, uh, no problem. What I'll also do is I put together what I think are a few of the uh, lessons from, or one of the key lessons from each of those uh, loca- each of those engagements. Um, things that I really wish I had known earlier, because they're very useful, very useful as a fresh grad. Heck, probably even very useful as a student, and very useful even today, so I try to make sure that my own staff learn those lessons as soon as possible. Basically learning from either my observations or my mistakes so they can go forth and make new and different mistakes for their own stories. So um, one of the things I would say, even back when I was at Stanford, which was a wonderful experience full of a lot of wonderful people, um, one of the things I learned thankfully by a sophomore year was the use and importance of proper planning, proper sequencing, and proper sleep. Freshman year, none of the the first two did not really happen, so the latter did not happen. Let me let I'll put it simply as my grades improved dramatically after my first year. So please consider proper planning, proper sequencing, and sleep. For Department of Water Resources, I was there for about a year before moving to the Regional Water Quality Control Board. And part of that was because the work at the Water Quality Control Board was more interesting to me and suited a bit better. So for at Department of Water Resources, I did a few um, pilots, basic engineering work. But one of the things that really stuck out as, I guess, kind of an interesting lesson is that we were using a very ancient software system to record some absolutely critical data and been using it for, I don't know how many years at the time, a good 20 or 30 years. And dating myself a bit, I was there in 1999 and everybody was very worried about the Y2K bug where programmers who'd taken the shortcut of using YY instead of YYYY for their data entry, their programs might behave um, interestingly. And what do you know, one of the key programs there actually had that issue. So the so after staring at it for a while, it's like, wait a second, This is the input is, can be a text file. Why don't we just go in and change the bloody dates? Instead of having it trying to rethink that it's 1900, we'll just make it think it's a few years ago, and then we can compare the data, okay? We can swap the dates on the other side. So sometimes the, sim- the, sometimes the really bloody simple solutions work the best. Instead of spending tens of thousands of dollars to update the software, we spent five minutes every week to just change the bloody dates one direction and then the other direction. Um, for the Regional Water Quality Control Board, it was a lot of regulatory work and a lot of inspection work, too. So we inspected wineries, um, abattoirs, um, industrial facilities, and some of them were absolute... The stench coming off of them was absolutely disgusting at times. But the most um, valuable lesson and which stays to me to this day, is that the head of that office was a lawyer because the United States is a very lawsuit-happy place, and California more so than the rest of the U.S. US. And the way that the very messy water rights and regulations are controlled in California is the regulatory agency will put out a rule, then the people that are upset about it will sue them. So the board was always getting sued all the time. It was just the way things were done. So when I joined, one of the very first things the um, head of the office said is never put anything in an email that you'd be unhappy seeing on the front page of the newspaper tomorrow. That was his iron rule because through the court discovery process, anything we put in an email could very well wind up on the front page of the newspaper the next day. Um, And I think that is an absolutely golden rule 
that I try to drill into anybody that I can talk to because it really does make your life much easier. Whether you're dealing with a difficult client, um, it's very nice when to make if you have to go to court or arbitration or to senior management where you look very calm and controlled and they look like a raving lunatic. And when it, even when it's a case of simple um, miscommunication, if you put it in a very calm, ordered manner that you'd be perfectly fine seeing on the front page of the paper the next day, then sometimes that other person can say, oh, totally misunderstood, total mis- uh, misunderstanding, this is what I meant. And it saves a lot of damage control and rage. Um, so if there's one thing anybody's listening takes away from this one, please take that lesson away. It's absolutely vital. When I was at SEMCORP, I joined, I joined SEMCORP in 2001 from 2003 and was very heavily involved in SEMCORP's bid for the Singapore's first desalination plant. Um, we lost out to high flux, but we also see what ended up happening to high flux. Um, and when we were doing that bid, I was putting together massive spreadsheets to help calculate the performance, the reliability, the costs of this design of this designed um, desalination plant. And I very proudly went to my boss at the time with my calculations, and I checked them and quadruple checked them. And I had some, I think it was a filter head loss figure, out to like five decimal places. And I showed it to him. I was so proud. He just looks at me and starts laughing. He's like, do you see what you did there? And I'm like, I went through the sig figs are rock solid, da, 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 da. And he just started laughing some more. And as soon as he could stop laughing, he said, look, if, um, if you're expecting anybody to construct anything in the field, if you're expecting anybody to fill in a filter with sand, if you're giving them five or six decimal points, it is not going to work. You have to be, uh, reasonable. You have to be, um, practical in the level of accuracy you're giving. Just because you can prove it mathematically, it doesn't mean the guy working in the field is going to be able to level it or slope it to a tenth of a millimeter. It's not realistic. And I can actually get I can actually tell a part two of that one a bit later. So Earth at Earth Tech. So after two years at SEMCORP, uh, my wife uh let's see we got married and she decided, went to, she, she got accepted to MIT for her PhD. So we moved to Massachusetts. SEMCORP at that time didn't have any overseas assets, much less in New England. So I ended up changing companies. They were a great group of folks at SEMCORP. I still keep in contact with them through a chat group. And that's, oh, good Lord, over 20 years later. Um, so EarthTech, it's a wet in, was a, it was a wet infrastructure company. It got bought out by AECOM. So it was doing water treatment plant designs, wastewater treatment plant designs, drainage designs, um, uh, regulatory permit applications, all sorts of stuff like that. And I guess there are two really key things, okay, really entertaining things I learned from it. Um, one, after talking with the senior engineers there, he was very in favor of trying new and unusual projects because he said you can be an exceptional pump station designer. You can design the best pump stations, but if that's all you're doing for two years, you're going to go nuts. It's going to be boring as all heck. Um, So always try interesting projects as well. And I think my career has pretty much been exemplified by interesting and unusual projects that other people didn't necessarily want to get involved in because they were unusual. So try the interesting projects. They're very, they're very fun. Also, take good, take, if you, if you do your work right, it'll be still be used decades later. So, like I said, I love Excel. I, and one of, and one of the major clients in New England was the Massachusetts, um, Massachusetts Water Resources Authority, MWRA. That's right. And they had very excruciatingly detailed ways that they wanted to see bids and tenders. They wanted you to do a special set of calculations their way. They wanted everything to be presented several different ways, and everything must tally to the penny, to the penny. So after going through a couple of these bids with the Excel sheets, I was pretty good at it. My things tallied up quite nicely. Um, so I got to do more and more of those. And I was... and. 
after about the third one, I was thinking, uh, this is a pain in the butt to redo the spreadsheets and amend them each time. I'm going to take a week. I'm going to make the spreadsheet a nice template that should be able to be used for any further project. All the formulas will be set. They'll be checked once and done. I'll lock them out, password protect them. Nobody can screw with them. And then it'll make this process much, much easier. Much easier. Um, worked nicely. The boss was like, hey, this is great. And then left Earth Tech, came to Singapore. So 14 years after I finished that spreadsheet, 14 years after I last touched it, one of my ex-colleagues was still there, dropped me a note and said, hey, just wanted to say um, thanks. We're still using that spreadsheet. It still works. <laughs> We haven't had to modify it at all. It was made with enough like tasks and subtasks that they never needed to add on. And they said, hey, we got really close in this last one, but usually no problems whatsoever. So, hey, it's still used. I'm like, wow, that's pretty cool. I like that. I haven't figured out how to put it in my resume yet, but I like that. <laughs> um, so even though it might be a little silly, that's one of my favorite ones from Artpack. For, um, for MWH, I was based in Singapore, and so we worked around, uh, around the region as well. And I had a couple of really favorite projects there. One of them was actually in Sabah, Malaysia, and it was a water treatment plant expansion and upgrade. And it was one of my favorites because the client was so bloody organized. It was just awesome. Um, so... We got the project, and um, I came up with a number of options for how this treatment plant can be upgraded, what we can do at each stage, what technology can be used. And in standard engineering, you provide your client options. You give options. You try to avoid, like hell, making recommendations. This is the client's choice. Now, sitting on the client side, I absolutely hate that. It drives me nuts. I want to hear the best. I want to hear the be I want to hear the recommendation, because the from the experts. And this was one of my first experiences with that. So I start giving the presentation to the CEO of the water concession company, who was a very intense individual, shall we say. And he stopped me after a couple minutes. He said, okay, I've read your, I've read your presentation. I want to know what do you recommend for this stage? What do you recommend? And then I said, was able to look right back at him and say, okay, I, I say, uh, sir, I recommend option A. He's like, why? For this reason, this reason, this reason. He's like, I agree, next. And that was pretty much how the whole, we went through the whole plan that way. He'd be asking, what's your recommendation? And then he basically, what the reasoning was. And then he liked what that was, so he was happy. And sometimes he would push, push, push a bit. Like, why are you not recommending membranes for my plant? Don't they perform better? Uh, yes, sir, they do provide, they can provide better um, treated water quality. However, this facility is 20 kilometers outside of the city. I know how long it takes for, to, for replacement parts to get in. It's also more complex and less forgiving for the operators versus this recommended option. It's, it was a basically large sand filtration system, and it takes real talent to hurt dirt. <laughs> Said more diplomatically, but really it takes talent to hurt dirt. I've seen people do it, but it takes talent. Um, so I was able to say, yes, it's very forgiving in case the operators have any, have any issues. And he agreed wholeheartedly with that. It was a test to see if we understood what his pain points were. So that was a really wonderful project because the client was educated, intelligent, sharp, and asked the right questions. They also paid really promptly, so I loved it. Um, after that, I moved to, after a number of years at MWH, they actually decided to close the Singapore office because the Singapore office would go into cycles. Either everybody would be flat out busy or things would be very quiet. And MWH was getting ready. It was a employee-owned company. The senior engineers had a lot of stock in it. A lot of them were getting ready to retire. They wanted their stock options to be worth as much as possible. So they were looking to sell the company. So they ended up closing an office that had been in existence in Singapore since before World War II. Um, so cleaning out the office, there were some absolutely fascinating artifacts, but that yeah, might be a discussion for another time. So... I moved over to Mandai. I was like, client side, life is going to be easier. 
Spoiler alert, no, client-side life is not easier. Uh, client-side, if the consultant does not have the answer the bosses are looking for, you have to find some way to find it, whether the answer exists or not. So lots of interesting things behind there. But one of the um, key lessons, I think, okay, two key lessons, um, is that you, when you're giving presentations, even even ones like this, you really should be listening to your audience and preferably not reading from a script. Uh, a lot of people I knew at Monday, they read from a script and they would be reading, I am reading from a script, I am reading from a script. So the no inflection in the voice. So they can so people can tell. And a number of times things don't go according to plan. Um, presentations run over, board members have lots of questions, um, and then so many times I saw people being asked, okay, hurry up, speed up. And they would be reading their script and following their script and talking exactly to their script. No matter how many hints of we're out of time, speed up, you've got. Um, so one of a great talent, which I had a little bit of when I started, but I'm very good at now, is when they tell you to speed up, speed up. I think I've got the recommend, I think I have the record there for the shortest presentation ever. It ended up being two words. Thank you. Um, and literally, the presentation was thank you. We, it was a very simple matter for an appro approval of a, pa of a patent, which, I, which my name was on, so I was very very uh, keen on it. And by the time I got to, got to sit down, the board members already talked it over, and they said, like, there's, there's no reason to object to this. We, we should totally do it. Okay, yes, approved. So by the time I sat down, the chairman just looked up and said, okay, this is approved. And instead of trying to read the bloody script for 15 minutes, it's like, thank you, head right back, and head right back out. <laughs> so listen to your audience. Know when, you can, know, know when to speed up and when to abandon any script or even some of your beautifully crafted slides if they are not needed. Um, also, one key thing, I guess, for younger listeners is that was also a very stressful job. Uh, very stressful. I had a lot more hair when I started it than I have now. So one thing I've got, I really urge everybody is do pay attention to your fitness. Don't let it, don't let it slide. It really helps you to think better, work better, manage stress better. Pay attention to your fitness. Eventually I was doing five or six kilometer runs every morning outside of the, outside of the zoo up there, which was very nice. Much better than, much better than alternatives. Even though I swear the monitor lizards, I swear those monitor lizards were a bit racist. They just, I'd be running, I'd run across them in the morning. They just stare at me with this, what the hell is somebody as pale as you doing out here in this heat? Huh? <laughs> and then they scurry off. The spitting cobras were quite antisocial. They'd take a, they'd just like continue on as if you didn't exist. Same with the oriental whip snakes. The paradise tree snakes would usually go in the other direction. The only dangerous things were the macaques. Those were nasty little buggers. Um, and then for, after, Quite a long time at Monday, actually. Um, I was very involved in the detailed certification processes, parts of the design process. Because again, reference, if the consultant doesn't know how to do it, the bosses expect somebody to do it. Um, as the project neared completion and the designs were finalized and finalized in concrete, the ability to make a further impact was reducing. And I saw a very interesting opportunity in Capital Land. So I moved over to Capital Land just about, just under two years ago. And one of the things that I like about Capital Land so much so far is that the philosophy from the management on down is that nothing's going to be 100% perfect and nothing on day one is going to be able to cover all possible situations. So do the best as practical and keep figuring out ways to improve it. Nothing is perfect the way it is, so nothing is expected to be perfect on day one, but you should have the mindset of continuous improvement. How can I do this better knowing knowing what I know today versus yesterday? So it's not a matter of, ugh, you were wrong, you screwed it up before, ugh. It's like, nope, now you know more than you did before. How do you apply that knowledge to make something better? So that's another very good uh, mindset. Look around, how can I make things better? And also not being shy to say how to make it better, because you know things today that you didn't know yesterday. You'll know things tomorrow that you don't know today. So use that increased knowledge, whatever it may be, to try to figure out how to make things better. 
Thank you I so much for hours about weird yeah. stories. <laughs> Thank you for all those those stories. There's a lot, and it's great to see that you've taken something from uh, every role that you've worked in, um, and that you are willing to share your learning with with us here on the podcast today. And as you mentioned, with your staff, you like to help them uh, learn your lessons so they don't repeat them, and they can have their own learning journey. I guess. Um, oh yes. I, I, I'm absolutely certain they're going to make mistakes, and I'm absolutely certain they're going to learn from them, and I'm absolutely certain I don't need to whip them for it because everybody makes mistakes. The important thing is learning from them and instead of dwelling on them and figuring out how not to do it the next time or how to do it better or how to use that mistake to improve something. Right. And so going back to your point about listening to your audience, because that um, was really interesting to me. Uh, and the importance of being flexible and, you know, being adaptable, like you were mentioning the speech and speaking faster, um, understanding stakeholder needs as well. And nothing will be perfect, but uh, the most important thing is to work with others to find like the, the most ideal uh, solution maybe. So at Capiland and in your other roles, um, how do you collaborate with professional stakeholders, um, clients, uh, to implement sustainable solutions and to find this most ideal solution. Ah, okay, that's another that's another big question, which I'll have to break down into various parts, um, because oh, there's a lot of parts in that one. Um, <laughs> so, and also, I love the engineering answer because again, I'm an engineer, and the standard engineer. The standard answer an engineer will give you to anything is it depends. So in this case, it really does depend. It depends on what the particular project is or what you're particularly trying to do. Because if you're trying to, some programs, they have to come top down. So you have to convince the senior management that the idea is good and that their staff should spend their blood, sweat, and tears and valuable time doing it versus versus other things. So some things, they have to be from the top down where the management says, this is what we shall do. No argument, this is what we shall do. Um, and of course, the, tr the trick is to, choose, is to, is to based on the situation, figure out what is, what is the most useful. Because you also don't want to be bothering senior management about very small issues. That's just silly and going to backfire horrendously. Um, the main way is, the, let's see, the main... I guess it would be summed up as stakeholder management, but you have to manage the stakeholders differently. So if it is something to do with, say, a particular asset, a particular building or a particular project, then you'd be engaging with the project team. And you'd have to determine what are their pain points and what levers you have. So for um, when I was at Mondai, the, sustain the sustainability team, they controlled the sustainability budget. So if we wanted something that was not in the design, we, would pr we could basically say... Um, how much does it cost? And then decide whether we wanted to pay for whether we wanted to pay for it or not. And then the arguments would come down more to either what's the baseline, or what baseline is being provided by the consultants, or how the consultants are approaching different things. And some consultants you can reason. Some consultants you can reason with, and you can say, no, that's not what I want. I want to be doing it this way. Or you can say. You can engage with them, you can meet with them, you can talk with them, and then you can say, look, why have, um, you're, tr like, okay, certification, here's a good example, here's a good example. So for a certain certification scheme, I'm talking, I'll be talking about two different certification schemes. So one, we'll call it certification scheme A. Um, the consultants did up the application and said, okay, we think you're going to be scoring X points, and you needed X minus two points to get the, the appropriate level of certification. We're like, um, no, we think you can get a whole heck of a lot more than those. And so we were meeting with them, we were talking with them. And we quickly cottoned on that they kind of understood that, but they were being very cost conscious. They're used, they were used to clients who wanted to um, do the bare minimum to get the certification, spend as little as possible. So we had to sit down with them and say, look, we have the, we, we've got the money. Tell us how much extra it's going to be. Tell us. You don't make the decision. We make the decision. Let us know. Okay, they went through, came back, and they scored more points. Good for them. We went through them. We're like, there's still so many that you're not scoring, so many things you're not doing. Why is that? And they're like, well, it's outside of our scope. We don't have access to the information. It's like, yes, that is correct. That is true. Ask the people that have the information. We can give it to you. We can help you. These are 
we will be scoring all of these points. We want to make, we want it in the application. Just tell us what you need and we'll give it to you. So it was more of a, it was like two or three rounds of, uh, I guess, workshopping or discussing with them to adjust their mindset from what they previously had to the frequency that we were operating on there. No, pro- no problem. At the, en- at the end, they got it. They were sorted. Everybody was happy. Tick. Another certification, different set of consultants, different certification. They had the level. They come in. They're scoring much less than the points. And it's like, what's going on? Oh, well, uh, we need more information from our suppliers. Don't care. You have to guarantee this particular level of certification. Like, oh, well, if we miss it, we just go with a lower level. No, you will not. It is in your contract. If you miss it, well, I have a blue passport. I can survive outside of Singapore. You guys do not. You must do that. We, we had to crack their heads and threaten them quite a bit to motivate them to do more than the bare minimums. So sometimes you do have to use threats and call down the thunder on recalcitrant or stubborn individuals. You just have to pick your targets carefully because you don't want to be doing that, doing that casually. You should be doing it only where, where, where it needs to be. Um, within Capital Land, we don't, ha- we don't have to crack heads, thankfully. We have, again, a, a, um, fairly strong commitment to sustainability throughout the organization. So it's more a matter of discussing with the various teams on the nuts and the bolts. What is causing issues for them? Why are they able to do this or not able to do this? How can we help? Um, how can we solve issues for them or not, uh, resolve, uh, sort hurdles through whatever way it is. And sometimes it's simply sharing information. So every month we have a group sustainability implementation committee meeting where we just share information throughout the organization on sustainability, on sustainability, what various people are doing, what things have been tried, what trials are going on. It's just basically an international inter-business unit information sharing, which is quite, um, quite nice. I actually, I like it quite a lot. And I know there were some vague bits in there, but does that help to address your question? Yeah, thank you so much. That was very um, detailed. And we're running out of time. uh, So I'm going to ask you two more questions. Um, The first, I'll ask you one now, and then we'll go on to the podcast signature question. Um, But as the last question, uh, in terms of your experience, what do you think are some of the key challenges um, in achieving sustainable development, um, whether that's in engineering or just in, in businesses as a whole? Oh, okay. Another good one. And I know I have to make this one fairly concise, but there, I'd, I'd say there are at least three key challenges. One of them is mindset. Um, do all the stakeholders understand that sustainability is important? In some cases, the answer is yes. In some cases, the answer is no. And in any cases where the key stakeholders are not so interested, then there is a need for engagement to bring them along. The second is technical. For example, in Singapore, even though we want to have even though we would love to have every single building running on full on 100% renewable energy, Singapore cannot produce that much right now. There's not access to it. So there are technical challenges. And some of those can be overcome, at least in part, with clever design and with new technology. And that brings to the third part, the third one, which is sometimes the, the constraint is time and money. If you're doing clever design, you generally need more time than you're just doing a copy and paste from the code of practice. Um, sometimes you might need to engage with agencies. You might need to engage inter- with internal stakeholders, convince people that the way you're doing it is better than the way they've done it before. You're going to need more time, and not 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 and not every project has that time. The other is money. Um, because there's two, usually two viewpoints. One is the project team that has a certain amount of money to build the, build the project. So they want to meet their KPIs and they want to make things as cheap as, not, as within budget as possible. There we go, as within budget as possible. Whereas those that may have a longer view, if they're going to be operating the, operating the asset for long term, they may say, look, you're rejecting everything that has an ROI of less than one year. I'm perfectly fine with an ROI of five years, six years, seven years, eight years, because I'm going to be holding the asset for 20 years. So that mismatch sometimes has to be addressed as well. I hope that addresses your question in the short amount of time we've got. Yes, thank you so much. Um, So to finish off this wonderful episode, uh, we're going to go with the podcast signature question, which is in 
one to two sentences or as concisely as possible. Um, what is your best advice for anybody looking to make a change um, within their community and within society? Oh, my. Okay. And for any, my best advice is for somebody looking to make a change, I guess, I guess, again, I'll try to break it into three parts. The first part is that the change should start with you internally. Um, what can you do to make things, be- to make the community a better place, a happier place, uh, a happier place, a more engaging place? Um, because if you are exhibiting better sustainable behaviors, your words will carry more weight. The second is to talk to people, to engage, to, to engage with people, and also to remember and to critically remember the audience that you're talking to. And in my case, that's very important because I'm American. I like to talk fast. I like to use contractions. And I've learned that I really do need to slow it down, uh, depending on my audience, because for those whose English, who do not have English as their first language, the speed is a challenge and the contractions are a challenge. And my only language is English. I've got a tiny bit of Spanish. <laughs> so I have only that way to communicate with them. I can't switch over to a different language. So I have to respect that. I have to respect that and respect them. And that kind of leads into the third one, which is to respect the, respect those around. They may have different viewpoints. Um, but the people should be respected, even if you disagree with the viewpoints, because if you don't exhibit uh, respect and treat people as people, nobody's going to listen to you, no matter how um, earth-changing or world-changing or amazing your idea is. Um, I hope that uh, sums it up. Yes, thank you so much. And thank you for sharing your expertise um, on this episode today. You have so much knowledge, and we can't even begin to uncover all of your stories and all of the knowledge um, that you've accumulated over uh, your career. Um, But thank you for sharing these wonderful insights. And I really enjoyed this conversation today. Uh, Same. This is a very nicely done podcast. I'm very, very impressed. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Eat Your Greens podcast. See you next time.